0: Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, April 9th. I'm Andrew Walworth. April 15th is right around the corner, so many of us are already thinking about taxes. But this spring, there is a special reason to talk about them, as President Biden has proposed new tax measures that, in his view, will fundamentally reshape the American economy. This week, his Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, announced an ambitious plan to seek global cooperation on corporate tax rates. Meanwhile, New York is set to run its own fiscal experiment, raising taxes on individuals and corporations. Life in New York City has already slowed down due to the pandemic. And we'll see if people are willing to pay higher taxes for the privilege of working in the Big Apple. Overall, Biden and the Democratic Party are making a huge political bet that the American public is with them on this. And that in the wake of a pandemic that devastated many people's financial lives, voters will embrace higher taxes and a larger role for government. Joining me to sort through all of this are co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, White House correspondent, Phil Wegman, and Douglas Holtz Eakin, president of the American Action Forum, former chief economist of the Council on Economic Advisors, and former head of the Congressional Budget Office. So, Tom, let me start with you, and I want to jump right to the politics of this. What do you make of this idea that Biden is betting that Americans are ready to accept higher taxes and more government in the wake of the pandemic? And if that's the bet he's making, is you right? Yes, I think broadly speaking, and and that's you know we've had crises
1: in in public life before, and and there does seem to be a shift where the public turns toward government for solutions. It happened after the 2008 financial crisis. I think the government uh, people are looking to the government for solutions on COVID. Um, I think more specifically, he's he's betting on the the notion that. The public supports higher taxes on corporations, right? And if you believe in the polling data, they do. But, you know, the question is whether that is going to first be possible. And it doesn't look like, from what I've seen and heard, that he's going to be able to get the raise, the hike that he wants, right, all the way to 28. It's going to be something less than that, most likely, and then, you know, what are the consequences of that? I mean, obviously the economy is is front and center along with COVID in the minds of the public and and we did have some great unemployment numbers. It looks like we're, you know, going to come out of this thing with some good some good growth. And the question is is this policy going to in any way slow the growth and sort of, you know, retard any recovery? You know, Biden says he it won't happen. He said the other day, you know, there's no evidence to support this and and this will actually help create jobs. I think Doug and maybe some other, (laughs) Doug could speak to this, but I think a lot of folks think that's flat out wrong um, and that this will have some, you know, some adverse effects on the economy. Doug, we've seen this script before.
0: Politicians like uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, Walter Mondale, they paid a political price for either raising taxes or even just talking about it in the case of Mondale. Are we seeing that political calculation change?
2: I, I worked for H.W. Bush, as well as W., and you know we've seen this movie before, as you said. Um, what I find mystifying about this is, imagine you're, it's 2015, and uh, we are in the midst of several years in a row of major American corporations deciding to relocate abroad. Uh, each time, there's just a political furor. The Treasury issue, madly issues regulations to try to control it. The firms get accused of being Benedict Arnold firms. And... Chuck Schumer and Rob Portman put together a working group that concludes that the U.S. is out of line because its corporate rate is too high, way out of line for the developed country competitors, Um, and we tax companies on the basis of their worldwide income. And this has got to change. And in 2017, what the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did on the corporation front was lower the rate and move toward a more territorial system where you get taxed on what you make in the U.S. and less outside. This is a complete U-turn. It it goes right back to to 2015, where we decided that we were out of step with reality. And so I find it mystifying that they are now saying, this is going to fix our problems. Uh, This was our problem. Uh, And and the, the addendum that they've come up with is, okay, this probably is a problem. So let's get Janet Yellen to convince everyone else to tax themselves more heavily so that we're not out of line. And good luck with that. I don't think that's going to
0: work. So, Phil, you're at the, the White House these days. Um, we all see you on Twitter now. It's fun to watch your uh, your daily jousts with the uh, press secretary. There, Biden has already sort of signaled a willingness to compromise on the on the corporate tax rate. At least, what, what is the White House strategy here?
3: White House strategy is that they believe that that polling is going to see them through in the end of the day. There's support for increasing taxes on individuals who are making more than $400,000. There's support for increase on taxes of corporations. And everyone likes infrastructure. That's their argument. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a, a frame though, as we see more and more details from the president's infrastructure proposal given that while the public broadly supports the idea of roads and bridges, uh, the administration is finding themselves now having to sell uh, an infrastructure package that does much, much more than that. And so the the hope of the administration right now is they want to get this through. They see this, you know, as a, a jobs program, um, even if sort of, only the skeleton has to do with uh, with roads and bridges. But look, I mean, the staffers that I'm dealing with over at the White House, these are our 20 and 30-year-olds who grew up uh, not during the Clinton era, um, you know, certainly not uh, Reagan or, or the first Bush. Instead, the, the sort of moment that defines their consciousness is the uh, Great Recession. Uh, they lived through the Obama years, and so their default, their knee-jerk reaction is always more and with urgency. Hmm.
2: Doug, is that true? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that uh, e- even in the economics uh, profession, as we've seen the the sort of next generations come in, get trained up, there's a, a far greater willingness to, to deviate from the so-called neoliberal consensus of, of hands-off private markets and uh, a minimal footprint for the government. That That's not their default. Um, I was trained that, you first demonstrate that the private sector can't do it. Then you demonstrate that the government can do it. And only when those two things are true do you uh, put some responsibility in the federal government. And, and that, the default now is, yeah, let's have the federal government do it. And, you know, we'll see how it works out. So it's a very different, very different worldview.
0: Well, Doug, since you mentioned uh, changing ideas about taxes, uh, I'm going to make a shameless plug for a new documentary series called The Unauthorized History of Taxes that we just finished for Fox. Um, and Doug, you play a prominent role in the film, as you know, and it, it tries to give the viewer a historical context for the debate we're having now on taxes. So a one-hour version airs this Sunday night on Fox at 10 p.m. Whole series is available on Fox Nation, which is their digital subscription channel. Brett Bear is the host. Uh, I hope you'll tune in. So that is my plug for my own show. But Tom, let's get back to the Senate where Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, has spoken out against parts of this tax plan. And he is, of course, a key person in a 50-50 divided Senate. What's going to happen with Joe? I don't know.
1: I mean, you know, he's been very forceful, wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post, gave an interview to CNN where he said, look, I'm not interested, will not in any way do anything to kill the filibuster. Um, He couldn't be more clear on that point. Uh, He also said that, you know, reconciliation, he said there's a time and a place for it, but it shouldn't be the main vehicle for them to move the agenda. And as we know, Chuck Schumer, you know, got this ruling from the Senate parliamentarian and they can take another bite at using reconciliation for the infrastructure plan. And now he's looking at trying to figure out how to how to shoehorn his way into immigration reform via reconciliation, some of these other things. And. So it seems like uh, you know Joe Manchin's a little bit reticent to just be on that on that train. He also reiterated his calls for you know bipartisanship and and wanting and needing uh, you know compromise. Um, now he said that about the COVID relief plan. No Republicans voted for it. It went through anyway. Uh, he was on board with that, but. But maybe now after that, uh, that he's going to actually, you know, sort of practice what he preaches in terms of making sure that Republicans uh, get on board with, you know, whatever it takes. If, if To the point, if, if the infrastructure plan needs to be pared down uh, and some of the stuff needs this extraneous stuff that the administration is now calling infrastructure, right, the caring infrastructure and all this stuff gets stripped away, then you could see perhaps some Republicans getting on board again. Question will end up being how do we pay for it, but at the end of the day, that's something that maybe because I think there is there's broad agreement that yeah you know what we could use some some new roads and bridges and you know our airports could be updated and all that stuff so um, so Joe Manchin is sort of at the moment positioned as the sort of skunk of the garden party for the Democrats he's going to um, if he if he stays true to what he says it's going to be tough for them to just jam through this agenda. Uh, as Chuck Schumer and some of the folks on the left apparently want to do, now, that's going to put him under an inordinate amount of pressure. Um, but you know, as I was talking about this the other day, I mean, Joe Manchin of of all the senators, um, is might be best positioned to handle that pressure because he is his own brand. Even though he comes from a heavily Republican state, um, you know, voters there know him. He has a lot of history with them. He's uh, so he's you know, he's in a position to tell the progressive wing of his party to go take a hike and pound sand. Um, and he's also, um, it'll be interesting to see how the Democrats uh, handle him because I think they have to be careful. They don't want to alienate him. They don't want to pressure him by calling him a racist for not wanting to do away with the filibuster or calling him, you know, all, all these sort of names using the tactics that they use against Republicans, because that might end up, I mean in in one scenario making him a republican and that wouldn't be very good for the democrats so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out but he is definitely he is king joe right
0: now Doug you're a pretty good uh student of the congress you've worked up there how do you view it
2: uh i first i, I think the notion that they're going to get another bite at the reconciliation apples uh too optimistic i mean the parliamentarian didn't say no but also didn't say anything more than yes there is a provision for uh, a, a revision to the budget resolution, and it can contain reconciliation instructions. Didn't say anything about the scope of that. Didn't say anything about just what constitutes a revision versus something out of whole cloth. And so that, that's, uh, I think, going to look less and less appealing to Schumer as time goes on. And if they, get, if they get to the point where they need to get something done, we're going to see the infrastructure plan and the American family plan, yet to be announced details, merge into a single reconciliation bill that that moves late in the year. And I still think that's the most likely forecast, and that gives them a lot of time to collect the Democratic Party and try to get on one page. That's the real problem now. They are not. They, they, their problem is not Republicans. It is in the House even. They don't have a consensus. In the Senate, they don't have a consensus. They can all look at Joe and blame him, but they have bigger problems, and, and they got to work that out.
1: Doug, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. I mean, is it... So if they... If they- Bundle those two things together, which will take it from two trillion to probably $4, four trillion. Yep. I mean, doesn't that make it less likely to pass? I mean, that is a big number to try and get
2: through. You won't get any Republicans. The only way you get it through is strictly, you know, reconciliation, straight Democratic vote, the same way the, the American rescue uh, plan went through. And it gives, but it gives you some additional revenue. They, they have had on their list raise the top rate on the individual side, tax capital gains more heavily at death and during people's lives. Um, uh, The price, uh, uh, the pharmaceutical price controls they have in mind uh, get you four or $500 billion um, as well. So that allows them, A, to get rid of the infrastructure fiction, right? They're just going to, we now are going to take care of families and and the the jobs and here we go. And they can pare back the corporate um, provisions as a result because they, They know in their heart of hearts they can, quote, get away with it because right now there's so much money on the sidelines that the moment the virus disappears, the economy's going to grow no matter what they do. Um, In in that moment, when you raise the corporate rate, it's going to look harmless. It's going to be two, three, four years from now when, when, again, we're going to see this sort of poor economic growth, headquarters deciding to go somewhere else, loss of jobs, and and they'll realize that was a policy error. But they they can get it through right now. And so they, they probably will. The, the, real, the real change that's happened in the profession. just to, to go back to something you mentioned earlier, the biggest change in the economics profession is the willingness to raise rates. Uh, you know, I was trained. Yes, you will need more revenue in your life, and we need more revenue right now. I think that's a, that's a reality. The way you do it is you broaden the base as much as possible, have the tax code be as neutral as possible, raise rates as a last resort. It's the first resort now. Let's go get people. Let's go get corporations. Let's go get individuals. And that's a
0: very different mindset. So let, I want to talk about New York, talking about a different mindset. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing. New York is going to, uh, the plan This announced this week, they're going to raise income taxes for New York residents. It'll make New York City the highest tax jurisdiction uh, in terms of income in the country. New rate for high earners in the city is 14.8%. Uh, that eclipses California, which is at 13.3%, which used to be the highest. And just a reminder that in Florida, that rate is zero. So, Tom, people vote with their feet. Are we going to just see further exodus from New York? And to Doug's point, I mean, what are these guys thinking? I got to say, you know, I do research before uh, these shows, believe it or not. No one seems to be for this other than uh, Cuomo and a couple guys up in Albany.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it is astonishing and it will continue the exodus to to Florida and Tennessee and Texas and other places, Um, you know, especially, I think when when New York City, there is a certain allure to being there, uh, pre-pandemic there was, right, with, because you had great restaurants, you had Broadway, you had all this stuff, you no longer have any of that. It's, you know, and it's going to take a while for that to come back. And in the meantime, it's been replaced by, you know, homeless people and, you know, skyrocketing crime rates and, you know, all sorts of stuff. New York City has sort of lost its allure. And so why are people going to stay there and pay these inordinate sort of confiscatory tax rates um, when they can go now to Florida or someplace else? And we've, we've all, you know read the stories about how businesses have adapted and people are conducting business from wherever now. Um, We have the same issue in Illinois. I mean, we have, you know, J.B. Pritzker, our governor wanted to, wanted to jam through uh, a, a progressive, you know, uh, tax scheme and voters rejected it. And so it's put a little crimp in his plans, but I mean, it's always, they need more money. Our, our rates here are our property tax rates, our sales tax rates, are very, very high. And you know, the city's a mess, the state's bankrupt. And the question is, well, why are we and the weather's great, so why are we living here, <laughs> right? Um, but but the, the government just always needs more money. And it is always it to Doug's point, it's 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 now the f- sort of default position to turn to corporations and high earners and say you are not paying your fair share. You must pay more uh, because we have these inequities. And it puts these states in, in sort of a death spiral. I mean, the exodus from Illinois is real. Property values are going, they were going down. Um, and, uh, you know, because people are leaving the state, and with crime rates going up, it's, it's, it makes it um, hard to turn around once you get into that sort of death spiral. And, and there are a few states that are struggling
0: with it right now, and they happen to be all blue. Well, Phil, you're young and an urbanite. Defend this. Is there a price you're willing to pay to to live in these great cities, Boston, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco?
3: You're asking me to defend these (laughs) massive millennial towers of decadence, these sky rises where everyone spends about a third or more of their paycheck on rent to live in this condominium. And oh, by the way, it comes with a rooftop pool, but that's okay because you're going to be young forever. Um, I don't know if I can do it. I was uh, I was gonna I was gonna tell Tom <laughs> to move to the greatest state in the union, which is uh, my home, Indiana. Uh, we should move over to, to Indianapolis. But look, I think that what's interesting is you talk to the twenty somethings, the thirty somethings who are here in DC, and they are very much in the moment. They have come to the consensus in their mind that limited government does not work, that tax cuts do not work, that the free market is not their friend. And this is a creeping sort of mindset that is also infecting younger uh, policy staffers on the right as well. There's much more of an appetite um, for people who call themselves conservatives to turn to the federal government to solve a lot of these problems. And it's interesting that there seems to be an appetite, perhaps not for more taxation, but certainly an appetite to go after corporations. Interestingly enough, uh, with some of the culture war stuff, you had Georgia, pull deltas, tax cuts on jet fuel. Uh, Texas was thinking about doing something similar. McConnell even sort of issued the shot across the bow where he was like, hey, corporations, try not to meddle. Uh, That would be bad if you were a woke parallel government. But then you had to immediately walk it back sort of the next day. The reason being is that there's this tension, at least on the right, where some people want to rein in corporations, but then at the same time, they're fighting against an increase in that corporate tax rate. I I think it's interesting that at a moment when on the left, you have much more of an appetite for big government, for taxes being increased, that there is not a standard bear on the right after the Trump years, where we saw a debt and deficits balloon to sort of stand for all of this and and shout no.
0: Doug, is there a champion out there for tax cuts? And as far as the deficit, it does seem that the Republicans have rediscovered fiscal responsibility and have revived their opposition to deficit spending after years of not worrying about it at all. They're talking about it, but there's no genuine
2: um, fiscal responsibility on either side of the aisle right now. I mean, that's just impossible to defend. So, uh, there isn't a champion at the moment. the Republican party's a mess uh, it's it's deeply divided um, the the populist wing doesn't have any policies because they they don't need to have to figure out what what principles they have and what policies flow from them. They give the people what they want and, and they use the the tools of government to do it and so um there has not yet emerged a a modern voice for traditional conservative uh, principles and policies and and that's something that um either will happen or those will go away i mean because they they need a defender at the moment
1: Doug, do you i'm interested in your take of, on what phil was saying which is there is this increasing hostility among republicans toward corporations particularly these you know right coke and delta and gillette and nike and all these companies that have have come out to be sort of woke and we've run a few pieces on real clear politics, but we're seeing it more and more, you know, as part of the the commentary and the culture, which is people say, look, Donald Trump has fundamentally changed the Republican party. It's now a party of, you know, blue collar workers. It's no longer a white collar party. That's now the, the, the parties have switched places. Right. And now Democrats are the ones who are, uh, you know, filling the C suites around the country and in Silicon Valley and the like. Um, do you agree with that characterization? And, and what do you
2: think the political ramifications of that are? Uh, we have seen an increasing disconnect. I mean, we, you know, think back prior to the election. Uh, you have um, the Chamber of Commerce announcing they're not going to exclusively support Republicans. right? They're, they're, so, and, and essentially say, by implication, you have not delivered. Y- you, you're you not able to govern effectively. And, and we've got to get someone who can. And so... That that, that rift starts there. Trump's behavior post-election um, uh, exasperates everything. They cut, and and you get these announcements that we're we're cutting off money to Republicans who defended the, the the president on this, and and then you get shots fired back by McConnell, and and it's it's now a real issue. I mean, there's a lot of tension there, and um, neither side knows what to make of the other, and. That's because there are really two Republican parties at the moment and they, they can't agree and the business community is is caught in the middle and they see no reason why they need to be. And so I, I don't see this um, uh, sort of going back to its previous incarnation quickly and I don't see them aligning automatically with Democrats either because there's a whole lot there that they're they're looking at right now and thinking, oh my, no, this we can't do this. So they, the business community is really, I think, quite caught in the middle at the moment, and they do not know what to do. Is that a bad thing for Republicans,
1: though, to be not seen as sort of the party of corporations? I mean, Mitt Romney famously said, you know, corporations are people, my friend.
2: So I'll just voice my, my frustration, which I've only had for about 40 years, which is, you know, you shouldn't be for corporations. The whole point of good economic policy is to have people do well. And corporations are a vehicle to the well-being of the people. And and there's nothing particularly interesting about corporations per se, in my view. And and, and it's always troubled me that Republicans so quickly say, oh, we're going to defend business and we're going to defend corporations. They also defend small business, like they're sacred. And like none of any of that makes any sort of coherent intellectual sense. Uh, but that that's where they've been for a long time.
0: Herb Stein, the great economist, said uh, yeah. a trend that can't continue won't, yep. I think, was basically so. You know, where does this movie end? I mean, how, can we keep running these deficits? Can we keep spending no. and spending and printing and printing? And- nope. No? No.
2: <laughs> no. You can't. You can't. So this, this can't go on forever. I mean, there's, there's no question about that. Um, it's already, in my view, taking its toll. Um, you know, the whole point of the, the massive borrowing is not the fact that interest rates are low and, or, or you like to borrow. It's that you want to take command of resources and use them in the ways the government wants, not the private sector. It's a, you could do it by taking it with taxes. You can do it by taking it with borrowing. It doesn't matter. The whole point is we want to get a hold of that worker and tell them to erect solar panels instead of going out and doing something else. Right? That's, that's the game. Um, so when you do that, you, you give up something. And in the numbers, uh, you know, a private sector investments about a 10% rate of return, uh, and infrastructure investments about a 5% rate of return. So, as you move the stuff across the line from the private sector to the government, you give something up, and, and it, but it's not dramatic, like you know, one five, It's five cents in a year. You don't notice it, but over time, cumulatively, this is sapping our capacity to increase the standard of living. It's why real wages don't go up. It's why everyone gets frustrated with our overall performance, and so we've already paid a toll for it and we will continue to pay a toll, and it will increase. Everyone thinks that there's no cost because there's not a crisis. I, I can't tell you how many people say, oh, look at Japan, it's all fine. Do you want to be Japan? Do you want to go from, from the second largest economy on the globe to a, a non-entity? No, you don't. That's a D. Um, so we're paying a price, and, and we should recognize we're, we're paying that price and, um, and, and sort of come to our senses,
0: but it's going to take a while. So, Phil, it does seem like... There are these two trends right now that I see. We come out of these crises with a bigger government and higher taxes to pay for it. At the same time, the laws of economics have not been repealed. And if anything, certain trends have been accelerated, including what we've been just talking about, which is that money is more mobile than ever. People, corporations, the global economy, it is easier to move your stuff someplace else where you get to keep more of your stuff. When you look at this, Phil, what do you see? This sort of end game here.
3: Oh, well, you won't be able to move your money to the Cayman Islands or to uh, the Bahamas once the global minimum tax rate is uh, is finally enacted, right? Because because that's going to happen. <laughs> um, I think that what we're seeing is that there were a lot of warnings um, about inflation, about debt and deficit in 2010, and that was what Republicans harped about during the Obama years. Like we've said earlier in this podcast, once they got into power, that all went out the window. And so you have a White House and an administration which does not care at all uh, about the arguments coming from uh, reawakening fiscal conservatives. They heard it during the Obama years. They saw that it wasn't uh, genuine during the Trump years. And there is a sentiment that, look, since the 1970s, the Uh, chickens have not come home to roost when it comes to questions of inflation. And it was interesting. We were in the White House briefing room when Brian Bees' deputy, one of his deputies in the National Economic Council, had to stop himself because he said something um, inaccurate. He said, uh, you know, that this amount of funding, uh, this amount of spending was permissible because, quote, interest rates are permanently low. And then he stopped himself. and He said, well, we think that that there are structural factors that will keep them very low for some time. Um, this administration doesn't exactly believe in modern monetary theory, the idea that you can just spend your way uh, out of trouble, but they're pretty darn close. And the reason why is they are seeing economics in terms of the last couple of decades. They're not seeing it in terms of centuries. Um, they're saying, yeah, you said that we lived on this fault line, for some type of economic earthquake that only uh, occurs maybe you know once or twice a century, well, nothing like that has happened within the last couple of decades. Therefore, we must be fine. And I don't think that until you know there's another crisis, um, that that mindset is going to change. And look, I think that you know as was alluded to earlier uh, in the podcast. Once we come out of the pandemic, like there is going to be growth. There is also going to be an immediate sentiment, sort of this you know, moment of, wow, things are back to normal. And, and maybe the everyday person isn't saying, oh, well, there was only 1% GDP growth. Maybe the everyday person is just going to say, look, I'm back at work and I can see my family again. And so they might not pay attention to what Republicans or conservatives would say would be a looming crisis.
0: So, Doug, uh, uh, Phil mentions the uh, uh, Janet Yellen's plan to sort of uh, set global tax rates for corporations that sort of regularize it, I guess, would be one way to look at it. Is, is that a fantasy? Is that possible even? And, and if, if you could, is it a good idea? A, it's not a good idea. Uh, and B,
2: it's going to be virtually impossible to pull off. Um, you, know, you really are trying to create a cartel to fix Uh, tax prices, and cartels never stick together. There's always an incentive to cheat in a cartel, right? I'm just going to give you a disguised credit for uh, locating jobs in my my country. So, you know, you might have a rate out there somewhere, but the effective rates are going to bounce all around, and and it's not going to happen. In the end, businesses don't care about taxes. Businesses don't care about uh, worker trading. They don't care about the, the infrastructure. They care about the value package they get, and if you can have a higher tax place that, that offers tremendous public services and a well-trained workforce, people will show up. And that's the New York problem. They're offering a, a bad value package and making it worse. Um, that's what That's been California's problem. All of public policy in California has been dedicated to the proposition that Utah needs to be a better state, so they just send people over the border. Um, and, and, and they'll learn this in the White House because what they're offering is an increasingly... Less valuable package. We'll raise your corporate rates, but we're we're not going to put the money into roads, bridges, and things that give you production uh, value. We're going to expand Medicaid, and we're going to rehab some public housing. And you know, uh, good luck with that. I mean, that that they will walk. You can move in this uh, in this world, and they will.
0: So, Tom, I'm going to give you the last word, but I'm going to ask you the question, which is always occurred to me, which is that every time we talk about Illinois, you tell me what's wrong with Illinois. When are you going to (laughs) vote with your feet? (laughs) Well, my daughter is a senior
1: who graduates in about a month. So, the, and we've had, you know, we've got five kids and they're, they're all in school. So there's never been a good time, but the window is opening, let's put it that way. And it will remain open for some period of time. So, look, we've been talking about it for years. And
2: uh, I, I just want to point out that I, I was in DC when my daughter graduated from high school. I, I was commuting from Syracuse, New York, and she graduated. And I thought to myself, is there any reason for me to ever go back to Syracuse, New York? And the answer was, no. <laughs> no.
3: <laughs> you may find that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Tom, um, I uh, would like
3: to put my plug in for Woodburn, Indiana. We have one uh, stoplight, two bars, three churches, a good high school, low uh, low tax rate. So,
1: <laughs> and there there are actually there are a lot of. Illinoisans that that are moving, you know, just across the border to Indiana or they're moving to, you know, just across the border to Wisconsin or to Iowa. And then there's the whole host of them that are moving to, to Nashville and to Austin and to, you know, Tampa or something. It is a real problem. And, you know, Richard Porter, who may actually run for governor, has argued and he's written repeatedly for us um, that given the constraints that we face here, that the only answer – is for the state to declare bankruptcy and for the federal we have to we have to because federal law will trump state law which is the problem with our our state law is baked into the Constitution that you cannot you shall not diminish pensions and we've never been able to get around that um, it's something that both parties have you know basically been part of as John Cass likes to call it the the Illinois combine um, feeding at the trough for 40 years and this is where we end up so, Maybe that happens when we get to that point, um, but um, you know, if we don't, I, I again, I don't know how this state will turn it around um, because of just the dynamics that are in play, uh, and you know, it's a it's a blue state. They keep electing the same people, right? Chicago's had a Democratic mayor for over a hundred years, um, and even when they had Republican governors with a, you know, with a supermajority Democrats in the, in the state legislature, there's just nothing that gets done. And so, um, it's a real problem. And again, I'm, it's not unique to Illinois. We happen to be probably in the worst shape of, of almost any state in the country, but it's California, it's New York. Um, it's other places as well. It's New Jersey. Um, and, um, so I don't know how this movie ends, but it's most likely does not end well. (laughs)
0: Well, I think the headline coming out of this, that Tom may be moving to warmer climes. So <laughs> with that, that that bit of news, we'll have to say goodbye. But I want to thank everyone, uh, Doug Holtz-Egan, uh, Tom Bevan, and Phil Wegman, my guests this week. Uh, this has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, April 9th. Again, tune in if you can, Sunday night, 10 p.m., Fox News, one-hour documentary that Doug appears in that i wrote and produced. So worth watching because it'll give you a little bit of historical perspective on topics we talked about today. And thank you for listening. For Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.